So if you are new to Trinity this morning, we welcome you, and we are in a little mini-series in the book of Psalms, and specifically Psalms of Lament. Um, I wanted to list for you just the, uh, I don't know, number four, five, six years ago, we started to, during the summer, preach through Psalms, different Psalms. And uh, it's starting to add up. And so if we've got that slide, and you can pop that up, just all those different numbers, um, Gwen. These are all the Psalms that we've preached, um, I think, since 2014. And so just want you to be encouraged by that, to see that. And uh, it's, it's it, you know, Psalms is a little bit different. It's not like it's one of those books that we would start in chapter 1 and preach through 150. Um, so it's good for us to kind of pull out of whatever series we might find ourselves in to make sure, I think it's important for us to, to, to gain from and value what's taking place in the Psalms. Have mercy on me. There are a lot of differences that are in the room this morning. Different upbringings, different values, different hobbies, different likes, different dislikes, different economics, different financial pictures, Some of you are single, some of you are married, some of you are married with children, some of you are married with 18 children, some of you are married and you do not have children. Talents and IQs and tastes for movies and books and on and on and on it goes. A lot of differences in the room. But there's one thing that if you've lived long enough, everyone in the room shares in common. And that's this. Life hasn't played out like you planned or you dreamed or you envisioned. Disappointments, failures, painful relationships, poor health. For you students, you got an F in that one class that the teacher had it out for you. Despair, grief, Loss of a loved one or a friend who died young. Dreams unrealized, hopes dashed, friendships that were once so close are now so distant. Vows broken. Life has not worked out like you dreamed, planned, or expected. And when that happens, some look to escape in a bottle of pills or a bottle of whiskey. Culture tells us to mute out the pain via a binge of episodes or a mindless scrolling on social media. But the attempts to numb the grief turns into another dead end on life's highway. The pain momentarily is masked, but it returns in the morning. The Bible offers a different antidote, and it offers it in the form of a lament. Laments are raw, they are honest, they are open, they are heartfelt. They don't pretend. There's no facade. Actually, the, the laments of, the, of, in this case, the Psalms, can be so raw, we might wonder, is the psalmist even a believer? Is the psalmist even a follower of God? Does he trust God at all? Laments don't drop us off in the dark on a dead-end road. The point of a lament is to walk us in the darkness to God, before the face of God. They are laments. They are not whining. They are not complaining. They are the honest Feelings of a believer taken to the character of God. Who God is, is always the resolve of the lament. You heard that already earlier when Josiah was exhorting us to worship. The character of God is always the resolve of the lament. So don't walk away this morning hearing me say, so let's just be more raw with God. 
I'm just going to be more honest. Now, we need to be more honest with God with the intent of running into the character of God. I'm going to let God just have it. That's not what a lament is. That's venting, not lamenting. Lament is to drive you to the hope that we find in God because of who God is. And Psalms 51 is the lament of all laments. It is the granddaddy of laments. And so for that reason, we're going to take two weeks on this psalm. This morning, we're just going to cover verses one through nine. Here's the big idea this morning. The lament of Psalm 51 is the cry and restoration of a fallen, broken king. It is a psalm that lives to help us in our brokenness to be restored into a right relationship with God. I said that pretty quickly. If you're taking notes, you can just leave that up there for a minute. Gwen, that's fine. And uh, we'll dive right in. Can, can I invite you? Let's buckle our seatbelts. This is a difficult lament. Let's pray. Father, we pause to humble ourselves before you and we pause to ask your Holy Spirit to bring his sweet presence into this room and into our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would see the grace of repentance on these pages, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would be quick to respond to the truth of your word. Lord, you have preserved this Psalm 51 for us, for our benefit today, July 14th, 2019. This is for our benefit. So Lord, may we have ears to hear. Pierce our hearts this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's buckle in. First thing we're gonna preach is the title. I'm going to preach the title. Don't know if we've ever preached the title before. Here's the title. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That, that's part of the scripture. Um, you probably have a, a heading over that. Mine says, create in me a clean heart, O God. That's not a part of the scripture. That was added by the um, editors in my case, the ESV editors, they added that. But that section there where it begins to the choir master, that was part of the psalm. And I want to pick that apart a minute because I think there's some important things there for us to see. First of all, it's to the choir master. What are we going to get out of that? Well, here's what we get. This song is to go public. Because... David's sin was public. He now writes this song to the choir master. This is going to be a song. How about that? How about we write a song about your sins? And then we sing about that next week. This is a public song. A public song. And, and I just, I want, I want to say thank you. King David for that because it, it's been preserved for us. His circle of offense is broad. Certainly Bathsheba, certainly Uriah, but the nation of Israel. It was public sin. And so it's appropriate that he would make public his repentance. And the same goes for us. And it's a psalm of David, it says, King David. So let's think about that for a moment. That is, that is to say the one who it was said of when Samuel was going through Jesse's sons trying to find, is it this one? No. Is it this one? No, not that one. Is it this one? And Samuel can't find a suitable king God keeps rejecting all the sons. Well, how about that one that's out in the field? Let's, let's bring him. And that whole, that whole thing, um, what concludes with this, man looks at the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. Speaking of that guy, 
That's what this, this, this psalm, he wrote this psalm. That king, that man became king. The one who God looked at his inner heart, not the outward exterior appearance of him, but at his inner heart and said, I want him as my king. It's also King David, the one who has said he is a man after God's own heart. Imagine that being recorded in God's word of you. And then it says, to the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is all recorded, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We don't have time to to read it all, but I'll give you a, a summary of it. David is on the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba bathing and the Bible records that she was beautiful and he desired her. So he sent for her, abusing his power, abusing his position, abusing his authority, he slept with her. He took advantage of a helpless woman. He took her, he committed adultery with her, and Bathsheba became pregnant. David then needs to cover up his sin. So he calls her husband Uriah home from the battlefield. So he can come home and be with his wife. But Uriah is a man of character. And he refuses to sleep with his wife while his fellow warriors are out in the battlefield dying for the kingdom and this king. Because of that, David needs to come up with a plan B. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield and tells the leaders to have the army draw back and allow Uriah to be killed. He has him murdered. So that he can then quickly marry Bathsheba and hide the fact that she's with child. A man after God's own heart. Nathan is then sent to the king to confront the king. Imagine having that job. And it's recorded in 2 Samuel 11, Nathan saying, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And church, that's the title to the Psalm 51, this lament. That's the heading. Let's jump into point number two, is the cry. Verses one and two. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I want you to hear the rawness of the heart of the King David as he cries out. Sometimes think that when we read Psalm 51, that we think that Christianity kind of lives above Psalm 51. We like to put on a face when it comes to the laments, when we hear other psalms that might be crying out, how long, O Lord, that we're supposed to somehow live above that moment of how long is this going to continue, Lord? We put on a face that we trust God or we put on a face of false righteousness. Listen, Christianity Christianity is not that we never get discouraged or despairing or ask how long. It's not that we never feel the crushing pain of our guilt of sin. The lament, the Psalms, the Christian, however, offers us a way to think about that disparity and that guilt and that crushing pain. It helps us to think about the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. It helps us to think about the dark night of the soul. Christians are not immune from the pains of this life. What makes you a Christian is not that you never experience these things. What makes you a Christian is that when you experience these things, you have a person to go to. 
in the pain, in the guilt, in the grief. You have a way, a means to think, a savior to run to. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're crushed right now in guilt or pain or despair. Psalms 51 is for the Christian. And we don't live above it. We live in it. The psalm lives to show us what do we do with the mess that we have made. And so David cries out, have mercy on me, O God. You, you know what he's praying? That he's saying, God, act like you act. Do what you do. Be who you are. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. That's who God is. God, treat me like you are. Your steadfast love, your, your unmoving love, your, your resilient love, your measured love, your unending love, and your abundant mercy. Steadfast mercy, abundant love. The two adjectives there. And notice where David is turning. This is important because because in the guilt of our sin, we are tempted to turn away from the Lord. We are tempted to close our Bibles a little more when guilty. We're tempted to pray a little less. Why? Because we know of our guilt. We're ashamed. Adam and Eve hide in the bushes. Nothing's changed. David knew he was guilty. He knew he had sinned against God. And at this point, through the loving and prophetic correction of Nathan, he's crying out, have mercy on me. And then he says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. Blot it out. Wash me. Cleanse me. Should he hear the cry of this broken man? This is not David taking grace for granted. Oh yeah, God will forgive. Now everything will be all right in the morning. God's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. He'll take care of this. No, this is David pouring out his heart before God, broken before God, crying out because of the grime of his life, he cries out to God for mercy and he, and he prays for total cleansing and nothing less than total cleansing. God, leave nothing undone. Purify. And his cry is motivated not because of what a just God might do. He cries because it's the right thing to do. God, cleanse me. In other words, some prisoners repent because they want out of prison. They want relief from the circumstances. And some prisoners repent because they see their sin and their evil heart and the pain it has brought. David is the latter. How distant is this psalm for you? Is it so far in the distance from you that you're thinking, wow, David, you're a mess? Are you kidding me? How could you? How could you ever do such a thing? Is Psalms 51 so down there below you? Or can you crawl into Psalm 51 in humility? I believe if we're honest, each of us has been so close to some version of Psalm 51. Right on the edge. Closer than you or I might want to admit or closer than you or I might even know. Psalms 51 is close. Perhaps one computer click away from infidelity. 
perhaps one seductive conversation away, perhaps one suggestive look away. Given the right set of circumstances, given the right opportunity, maybe Psalms 51 has been closer than we even knew. And perhaps for some here, it has been you. Either way, Psalm 51 is for everyone in the room. Point number three is ownership. Verses three through six, actually it backs up to the end of verse one, but notice how many times David is saying, my, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, and then verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your sight in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He begins there in verse three, for I know my transgressions. Or what he's saying here is this, all of this, it's mine. It's on me. I did this. And David is owning up to his failure. It is, what does he say? It is ever before me. And so he's not blame shifting. He's not blaming God. God, this is the way you made me. He's not blaming Satan. He's not blaming others. It's on me. And church, I want us to to consider that and I want us to, to hear repentance isn't repentance until we own it. As long as I'm blaming someone else, and there's always someone to blame, and if we can't even find that someone, we'll at least pull the devil into the picture and blame him. Because if I can blame someone other than myself, then I don't need to repent, at least not like this. Repentance isn't repentance until we get to this place of ownership. It's mine. It's ever before me. They are my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. And he says in verse four, and against you and you only have I sinned. Really? This is to live before God. Ultimately, ultimately, really. Against you and you only have I sinned? Really? What about her? What about him? And what about the whole nation? Have you sinned grievously against someone? The first thing you and I need to do is to recognize that it is against the Lord primarily and ultimately. And that is to live before God. What makes sin sin is that it's against God. The reason why it is sin is because ultimately sin is against a holy God. Ultimately, he is the Lord. He is ultimately the offended party. He is the one that we have rejected in our rebellion. And so he says, in your sight, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's in the sight of the Lord. And you know, in our sinfulness, we tend to minimize God. We tend to minimize this aspect that it's in his sight. We tend, to, we tend to lie to ourselves. That sin is just a private thing. It's a personal thing. And when we do, we are minimizing the Lord. We buy the lie. Pornography buys the lie that God is not omnipresent. We buy the lie that this is a private sin, that this doesn't 
hurt anyone, that no one knows or no one needs to know. We buy the lie that God is a small God, that he's not omnipresent. The truth is, is verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, I have no argument against you. If you exact judgment on me, if you bring justice on me, I have no objections. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, I am guilty from birth I am guilty. This isn't David making an excuse. He's not saying, well, God, this is the way you made me. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I intensify my guiltiness. The innate sinfulness is in me. My guilt is intensified in that from conception, I am a sinner. From day one, I am guilty. I am not basically morally good. My nature is diseased to its core. When we own our sin, we, verse six, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Meaning, best way I can put it, this repentance, it's not a show. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. This is, this is at my core. God, have mercy on me. Repentance isn't for a show. God wants truth. God wants inward purity that results in an outward purity. Purity that is only outward is nothing more than a show, a pretender, a hypocrisy. And you might fool others, and we might even fool ourselves, but you're not fooling God. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And God has done that. God has blessed David with enormous wisdom. David, you have an advantage. And yet, God desires true purity, heart purity, inward purity, sincere love for God, holiness. And that's why Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in, her, in his heart. Why? Huh? Why? Why is that? Well, because Jesus is saying it's more than an outward appearance of things. It's more than an outward obedience. Pat yourself on the back. Outward obedience is taking place, but my heart is lusting. And he isn't interested in that show, that appearance of outward obedience, outward holiness. He wants our hearts. He wants everything about us. And so Jesus, he walks through the rest, right, on the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said this, but I'm telling you this. You've heard it said that, but I'm telling you that. And all of those are just issues of the heart. You have, a, you have an appearance of godliness. You have an appearance of love for God. I want your heart. Number four, the gospel, verse seven. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Purge me with hyssop. What in the world is that? Hyssop is talked about in the Bible, I think probably starting somewhere near probably Leviticus. And the hyssop was a branch, and it was used by a priest, and it would be dipped in blood, 
and it was used in ceremonial cleansings. It might be used in the ceremonial cleansing. So a priest would ceremonially be pronouncing, you were once a leper, but through this branch, this hyssop, you, are, you have been purged of your disease. You are now cleansed. It was also used in the, in the ceremonial cleansing of a house that perhaps had disease in it at one time. So the priest would go through it with the hyssop, with the branch. Verse seven is pregnant with redemption. Christ is the priest and his blood is on the branch and the heart, the house is cleansed by the blood of Christ. He's saying, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Prior to Christ, Old Testament saint here, right? Old Testament believer. Christ is not on the scene yet. And yet, as we know, the entire Old Testament is about Christ. It's about Christ will come. The one will come. Actually, they raise the hyssop branch up to Christ on the cross. Christ will purge you with hyssop and he will clean you and wash you and you'll be whiter than snow. Psalm 51 is bursting in the midst of gross, unthinkable sin, bursting with gospel. Verse seven shouts to us, look to Jesus who is to come. He's coming. He's coming to save you. He's coming to wash you. He's coming to cleanse you from all, all of your sins. David's crying out, have mercy on me. Sprinkle that atoning blood over me. Give me the reality of what all those ceremonies symbolically represent. Make that my reality. And it's a raw prayer. And it's a raw prayer that's mixed with faith, isn't it? Here's the prayer. Purge me with hyssop. Here's the faith. I shall be clean. That's pretty bold. Maybe we'd say that's pretty presumptuous, isn't it? I will be whiter than snow. Well, it's not bold, it's not presumptuous. It's a man who knows God. And he knows the character of God and he knows who God is and he knows God is his God. What you don't find here in the pages here is I will wash myself clean. I will cleanse myself. I will purge myself with hyssop. I'll call the priest in. And I will in some way atone for my sins. You don't hear that in these pages. Spurgeon says, scarcely does Holy Scripture contain a verse more full of faith than verse 7. Whiter than snow? Do you have a category for that, for a guy like David? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with David being forgiven like that? Don't don't jump to an answer too quick. What if you were her dad? What if you were Uriah's mom? Are you okay with that? What about the family? What about their reputation? And now it seems so easily dismissed. John Piper says this about this. And I wanted to quote John Piper because I didn't want to be the one to say this. (laughs) Thanks for laughing. It's really quiet in here this morning. He says this. This is outrageous. Speaking of, I'll be whiter than snow. 
He continues, Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is raped. The baby will die. And Nathan says, back to 2 Samuel 11, the Lord has put away your sins. Just like that? David committed adultery. He ordered murder. He lied. He despised the word of the Lord. He scorned God. And the Lord put away his sins. What kind of righteous God, righteous judge is God? End quote. I wanted to use that quote because I think you need to feel something of that. That we don't just brush over this. Oh, yeah, whiter than snow. Great. You and me too. We're good. You need to feel something of the grime of David and the grime of you and I. How can it be? And the Lord put away his sins. How can a guy like David and all that he's done be washed whiter than snow? Do you have a category for that? I've got a category of somewhat forgiven. I've got a category, right? You've probably all seen the snow when it's been on the ground for months alongside the, the side of the road and it's kind of turned into slush and then it snowed again and more slush and all the you know, street grime is mixed into it and it's just nasty. I got a category for that. Is God just sweeping adultery and murder and lies under the rug? What about the injustice? What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about their marriage? Is that what forgiveness is? David sins, we sin, and God just says, not a big deal. I'll forgive you. You're washed clean. Go along. It's not how the Bible presents it. He is washed whiter than snow. And so is every believer in Jesus Christ who repents of their sins and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sins is washed whiter than snow. What about all the injustice there? Is God sweeping the adultery, the murder, and the lies, sweep it under the rug? The New Testament, we could turn to many places in the New Testament to speak to this, but just this one, 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, so God, speaking of God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For for our sake, he made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus, who had no sin. Jesus, the perfect, innocent, righteous son of God, knew no sin, became sin. Meaning, he took all that grime. All the grime of your sin, my sin. All the grime of David's sin. Listen, it's not that justice isn't being served. The justice of God lands on his own son, Jesus Christ, when he became sin who knew no sin. Praise God. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here whiter than snow. He took all of our sin on his shoulders. That's why he's hanging on the cross. The wages of sin is death. That's never changed. We either will die in, as sinners and we will pay the price for our sin or we will repent of our sin, trust in Christ that his death pays for our sin. But Justice is met at the cross. Christ died in our place, in our stead. He stood. And God never 
sweeps that rebellion under the rug. Amen. Amen. Never. Never. Not once. (laughs) Never. Not once. Thanks, Peter. I'll pay you later. (laughs) No, seriously, thank you. It is amen. It is praise be to God. It is stunning news what Christ has provided. Listen, going back to that snow in the side of the road thing, right? It's grimy. It's nasty. I got a category for that for David. That's my self-righteousness, right? Here's the reality. Your sins, Christian, follower of Christ, your sins have been completely paid for, bought. You are made whiter than snow because his righteousness, he takes the grime and he places his righteousness over you and his justice has been met. So when we repent of our sins and when we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, then every sin is paid for that you have committed. That you will yet, have not yet committed, it's paid for. This is not sloppy grace. This is not, oh, okay, it's paid for. I just go live like the world and I got Jesus and he's gonna forgive me in the end and all is well. No, that's disgusting. What an offense to the holiness of God. When we take his grace for granted and we abuse his mercy, that's not what's going on here. It recognizes, no, Christ had to die for me to be righteous. And in doing so, nothing got swept under the rug. The price for our sin has been paid for. Praise be to our God. Is there any injustice in this? Well, if there be any injustice in this, it would be this, that the innocent one is proclaimed guilty and dies for sins he didn't commit. That's the injustice. And that's the only injustice. For the rest of us, if death, justice for our sins were brought to us, it would be right. It would be righteous. Jesus paid it all. The scandal of what's going on in Psalm 51 is followed up by the scandal of forgiveness. The gospel is oozing off the pages of Psalm 51. The gospel is that big. It's that big. How big is your gospel? Is it big enough to forgive David? If you're like me at different times, tempted to look down your self-righteous nose at David, is the gospel big enough for David? Is the gospel big enough to forgive you of all your sins and wash you, cleanse you whiter than snow? Or do you have some sort of special category of sin that's bigger than Christ's sacrifice? I think not. It's not that you need to forgive yourself. It's that you need to see how large the forgiveness of Christ is for you. It's, is Christ's righteousness enough for you? You don't need to forgive you. You need Christ's forgiveness. And is his forgiveness enough to wash you whiter than snow? Or do you believe that your sins are just far too much for the Savior and that his death was good, it was pretty good, but it wasn't that good for your kind of sin? Psalms 51 lives for you. It lives here for you. Number five, the posture. Verse eight. Let me hear joy and gladness. You imagine? 
David saying, can I be happy again? Can I rejoice again? Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. We began in verse one with this utter cry for mercy, pardon, forgiveness. And we end here where David takes us. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I want to join with David and say, yeah, let me hear that. Let me have joy. What, what, it's coming in the next section next week, right? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Let me hear joy. Let me hear rejoicing. Let me have gladness. What do you hear in your guilt? What do you hear in your shame and the hopelessness and the other utter despair and when there's no way out and you're just hearing the verdict, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. That is what David has been hearing since Nathan came to him. And now he's praying, Lord, let me hear joy again. And that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? That's exactly what the gospel does. It lets the sinner hear joy again. It says to the broken, you are healed. It says to the wretched, you are made new. Do you hear joy? Do you hear the joy of forgiveness? Because that's what Christ offers us this morning. He offers the joy of pardon in your bones. He offers this joy that exceeds the noise of the guilt. The bones you broke, verse eight. Rejoice, broken bones, means, means he was crushed under the weight of his sins, the bones broken under the crushing weight of sin, but he knows that if God would heal his soul, he will yet again rejoice in the Lord as he once did. It's amazing forgiveness. We can be so familiar with this psalm that we don't know anything about it. It's amazing forgiveness. If the worship team would join me on the platform. This Psalm 51 asked you early on, can you crawl into this psalm? Or is this psalm so distant, you, you, you got no categories for this in your life. You're, you're beyond any of this. Or can you crawl into this psalm? Christian, this psalm is for us. You better be able to crawl into this psalm. If not, I would be concerned the lack of sobriety and humility and resounding arrogance would concern me. And I would pray that the Lord would not lay us low. Is this you, Psalm 51? I want to say to us, this is Trinity every Sunday. This is Trinity every Sunday. This is Trinity every time you take that bread, you take that cup. This is my body. Do this in re- this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. This this is us. Psalm 51. This is prep for Isaiah. This is a primer for Isaiah where Isaiah is going to call us to repentance. We want to call everybody outside of these four walls to repentance, right? No, that's not Isaiah, and that's not Psalm 51. The call to repentance is the people of God. The problem in Isaiah isn't all those nations surrounding them that the Lord is going to use to attack and destroy them. The problem is inside the gates. And they won't humble themselves and repent and run to the Lord even haven't been warned. This is 
Trinity every Sunday. This is communion every time. This is prep for Isaiah. This is revival. This is revival. What does revival look like? Some would say, well, it looks like band play louder and let's sing louder and let's shout and hoop it up. That's revival. Some would say revival is, well, let's meet every night of the week and then that's revival. I submit to you, revival is repentance. I submit to you, revival is brokenness before the Lord. And this is what your soul and my soul needs. And this is what the church needs today. And this is what the world needs to see in us. This is the prodigal who's been eating in the muck with the pigs. And he returns home. And the father sees him at a distance and what he runs to him and he embraces his son his prodigal son and what does he say kill the fattened calf call the servants we're gonna celebrate he's restoring the joy let there be rejoicing in my house tonight Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. I would put it like this. Do what I can't do. Do what I can't do. God, I need you. Do what I can't do. Blot out my iniquities. Would you stand with me? Father, we pray right now for your spirit's presence and your help. In this moment, Lord God, how great you can you before we sing I just want to invite you to pause I want you to, to where appropriate just pause and repent right where we stand I'll be quiet for a moment to do business with the Lord to wash you whiter than snow. So I would encourage you to run to Him. 